You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Uh, Welcome to Redemption Church. We are a community centered on Jesus pursuing um, redemption and connection through grace and sharing and exploration. Glad you're here this morning. If you're new, um, we'd love to get to know you. There's a card in the seat back in front of you. If you fill that out, drop it in the black box on your way out the door. Um, Someone will get in touch with you just to say hello, answer any questions that you might have, tell you a little bit about our church. Um, We won't hassle you or do anything weird, but there you go. There's that. Um, So last week, we started our new series exploring what happens after you die, basically. And we talked about um, the good news of Jesus as something that isn't centered on this idea of going to heaven or going to hell when you die, but instead is this idea that's centered on God bringing heaven here to earth. Um, And we briefly looked at the dangers of what can happen when you take that story and you make it uh, the the final destination of your soul, kind of the point of the story. But this week, what I want to do is there's like another danger that we have to be careful of, uh, and I want to unpack that briefly today. Because while heaven is not the point or the goal, there is something that is real and actual and important about this thing or this place or this reality called heaven, and so that if we ignore heaven and pretend like heaven isn't a thing, or maybe we make heaven this kind of like feelings thing, or make heaven sort of this mentality thing, then we can really miss out on something that's crucial and important to what Jesus is doing among us here today and right now. Um, So there is this cynicism that many of us bring to our worship, and some of that cynicism is like honestly earned. It's been beaten into us by other people. Uh, Sometimes that cynicism is just our personality. Sometimes that cynicism is from just our own general skeptical outlook on things and on life. And we hear this story of like, hey, there's this guy who lived 2,000 years ago who died and then came back to life, and that somehow is supposed to like change everything about who you are and what you do. And I get it. There's, there, yeah, you have a right to be uh, skeptical about that story. But one of the dangers that we, we have is as we begin to wrestle with God through some of this cynicism and skepticism, um, I want to warn us of the danger of treating this idea of heaven as like an ideal, right? As like a, the, the same way that we, we would treat like Christmas, right? Christmas isn't a day, 
It's something in your heart, right? Heaven isn't this thing. Heaven isn't this reality. It's something that you experience in your heart. And so when Jesus, at the end of his resurrection and his time with the disciples, when he ascends into heaven, what that really means is that he like quietly lives as an ideal in each and every one of our hearts and that we too can be like Jesus and bring just a little bit of that ideal into the world around us until we die. This is certainly not what we mean when we pray God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So then, uh, what is heaven? What do we mean by heaven? Probably more importantly, because we could all sit around like um, Ricky Bobby and say, well, I like to picture heaven with golden unicorns and cotton candy rainbows, right? And invent a heaven of our own choosing. But what do the scriptures actually say about heaven? What does Jesus say about heaven? That's what I want to spend our time doing this morning. And then more importantly, after we kind of unpack and detangle some of that, what I want to do is like talk about, okay, so why does this matter? Who cares? What does this have to do with my life here and now in 2023? So a while back when we were talking about how we can be renewed by the scriptures, I suggested to you this idea that if we will allow the scriptures to reshape our imagination, uh, almost like uh, if we let the scriptures world build for us, help us to better understand the world that we live in and the the lives that we ought to be living or maybe the lives that we are living wrongly, um, we can go a great distance in helping renew who we are and what we're all about. And one of the ways that Scripture pushes our imaginations is in this idea of heaven. And there's nothing really surprising here. The scriptures overarchingly are going to say, hey, heaven is the place where God dwells and from where God reigns and does his God stuff. But it's also, maybe more surprisingly, it is originally very tightly knit to earth. So we think the counterpart to heaven is hell when really the counterpart to heaven is earth, and it's always been earth. It's always been heaven and earth, not heaven and hell. And so the scriptures do not primarily conceive of heaven as a place, that is to say like a spatial location up in the sky, but rather as an unseen realm is the word that I like to use that's distinct from the material world. So that that heaven is a reality, rather than a location. If we were to, if, so uh, Gabby is very disappointed that NASA ended its shuttle program. Um, I don't know if she understands SpaceX, uh, the whole thing. I don't understand it. Uh, but anyways, if we were to go and get in a shuttle down in wherever that is, down in wherever Texas, and get in a rocket ship that hopefully doesn't blow up, uh, we would go up into the atmosphere and then beyond the atmosphere and then up out into outer space and then out into the cosmos. And so like in the ancient world, in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament, their understanding of heaven was not that if you stayed in the rocket ship long enough, you would arrive in heaven. That's, that's not their conception. Even though they use language that sometimes sounds like that to us because they talk about heaven being up, That's not their conception of heaven. Heaven is a reality that could be experienced here in this present world as well as out beyond it. And so in their world, in their thinking, especially in the the Hebrew way of thinking, there's actually three heavens. And we're going to get into some like nerdy Bible stuff here for just a minute. Give me a second to like nerd out on heaven for a minute. This gets, I get super geeked out about this. This was very exciting for me. So just let that be. Uh, This is your Christmas present to me. Let me be excited about it for a few minutes 
and then we'll um, get to the point. Hebrew concept is that there are three heavens. There's the spiritual world that's immediately around us, where like angels, angels and demons, and in the Old Testament, other gods would interact. Then there's like the cosmos. So when God takes Abraham and he says, hey, count the stars in the heavens if you can, right? He doesn't mean, hey, count the stars that are in this immaterial spiritual realm. He's like, no, 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 the the stars in the sky. But then there is this third heaven, this heaven of heavens, this third realm that Paul talks about, which we'll get to here in just a second. And so this is where this gets really fascinating because we always assume that heaven is the good place and hell is the bad place, right? And so heaven is filled with all of the good and godly spiritual beings and hell is filled with all like the evil demonic spiritual beings, which is not the case at all. We'll talk about hell next week and what that is and our misconceptions of it. But here's what's wild. Are you all ready? Buckle up. This like blew my mind. I know I'm hoping it blows yours like it did mine. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And if you've got a Bible, pull it out so you know I'm not lying to you. It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. The spiritual forces of evil that exist in the heavens. Well, God can't be in the presence of evil. Oh, really? Have you ever read Job where Satan himself goes into the throne room of God? Have you, have you read Paul where he seems to talk about the evil spiritual forces that exist in the heavenly places? Have you ever read the story about Jesus who was God who came down among sinful, evil humanity and existed among them and touched them and healed them and ate with them and drank with them and enjoyed them? If, if a cornerstone of your good news of Jesus is that God can't be in the presence of evil, we have a problem. Because all over the place, God is in the presence of evil. That's a side note, another conversation for another day. So there are these three heavens, and in the heavens, we can be sur- surprised to see like, oh wait, hold on, this is way more complex than maybe we first thought. So there is this heaven, uh, or heaven language becomes this language that captures what we would call like the spiritual realm or the spiritual dimension, or right? I conceive of it in a variety of different ways. But it's opposed to or set against the material world. And here's like the really beautiful key of this. It's not meant to be that way. Back in in Eden, heaven and earth were tightly knit together. In Revelation, heaven and earth are tightly knit together. The the existence that we have now, where there's this severing between heaven and earth, is not creation as it's meant to be. And so heaven becomes this kind of broad catch-all word to describe all of these things going on in this other realm. We see this in Paul, we see this in Jesus, when Jesus confronts and casts out demons, part of what he's doing there is taking back dominion of God over this territory that evil had come in and encroached on. So he is driving evil away from him in the earth. And then this is where, this is the part where I get, like this is the nerdy part where I'm like super excited about, okay? 
So the scriptures then in various ways refer to the heaven of the heavens or the third heaven in this like really weird way. And we, in my mind, I conceive of it as like vertical layers when that's not really the concept at all. And all of a sudden this week, it struck me, oh my gosh, it's been right there the entire time. Heaven is a temple. Right, so if you go back to Eden, and if you go forward to Revelation, and if you look in the middle of what's going on in Israel, there was always in the presence of the people of God this construct. At the center is the presence and the reign of God. And then outside of that are the people that are drawing in and drawing nearer to that. And then on the outskirts of that are the people that are far from God, right? Revelation describes it as like the liars and the blah, 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 right? And so what you have is this concept as of like like a distant heaven, a close heaven, and then like the third heaven, the place where God actually physically reigns. And so the scriptures paint a picture of the heavens as a temple. And so much of this begins to help us understand what God is doing among the people of Israel when he tells them, hey, build a tabernacle and I want it to look like this. And then take this temple and you're gonna build this temple and I want it to look like this. And oh, by the way, all of this is harking back to the Garden of Eden, which was originally meant to look like this. Where Eden was the holy of holies, where Eden was where the presence of God dwelled in the earth, and the whole intention was that humanity, as both the kings and the priests of this world, in, in reflection of who God is and what He would like, uh, what He was like, would cause heaven to spread upon the earth, would cause the holy of holies, the presence of God, to spread upon the earth. Obviously, that didn't go so well. Here we are in 2023. That's a whole other story. So I first heard this um, from this big-time Jewish scholar. Uh, so there's this really random place in Houston. It's actually like in Tomball. It's this library that this really rich lawyer built, uh, like has gobs of money. And it was like, I'm going to build myself a theological library. And then he built himself a theological library, and it was so like crazy. He was like, uh feels a little weird to like just have this in my backyard as my own. And so he opened it up to like public use. You can actually go there and visit this library. It's insane. It was on million dollar rooms. It's legit. It replaced his zoo. Okay, just to give you a concept of what was going on here. Anyways, that's a side note. Random thing that they do there is they have like these world-renowned scholars that they fly in who basically are like, hey, just stay here for however long you need um, for free. All we ask is that you do some sort of teaching while you're here, while you're on sabbatical or doing research or focused work or whatever it is they're doing. And so uh, I randomly heard about this guy who's going to become doing some like, he's really good at Hebrew and he's from Israel and he's going to uh, do a basic Hebrew reading through certain parts of the scriptures. I'm like, that sounds great. I'm in Hebrew class right now. This feels like it would be helpful. So I go and I take some classes with this guy. Um, I find out later on, I'm like, I don't know, months later, after this is all over with, I'm like just thumbing through my Hebrew Bible, and I look at the beginning, and like there's his name in like big, bold letters. Like, oh, he wrote my Bible. <laughs> He's like the chief editor of the Hebrew Bible. I'm like, oh, that's, that's kind of interesting. So, so this is where I like first heard this idea from. This is a practicing Jew um, whose, like his expertise is ancient Semitic languages, so much so that he is the chief editor of the Hebrew scriptures. And he's, talk, he's walking us through Genesis chapters one and two, and we get to this word of, and then God planted a garden. 
He says, you know what this word is in Greek? It's paradiso. And he's talking to a room full of Christians. Do you know where your Jesus uses this word? When he turns to the thief on the cross and he says, today you'll be with me in paradiso. You're like, okay, uh, neat. Uh, what? So, okay, here's what's going on. So they take the Hebrew scriptures and they translate them into Greek after they go into Babylon uh, during this period of exile. One of the, the crazy cool features of Babylon were these hanging gardens. These hanging gardens became the word that they would use to describe a garden, paradiso. And it was this lush and vibrant like uh, landscape miraculous thing that they had. And so what, they, what the Hebrew scriptures do when they're translating them into Greek, which would have been what Jesus used a lot, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, is they use this Persian word, paradiso, to describe Eden. And the Old Testament does it in the creation narrative, but then the prophets do it all over the place. When God returns and establishes his kingdom, Eden will come back and it'll be like a paradiso, or our English translations probably translate it like a flourishing garden. But then in the New Testament, we see this word three times. Like I told you, I was gonna nerd out, super nerdy. This is so exciting for me. So, right, Jesus uses it. Revelation chapter two, verse seven uses it. He says this in Revelation, the one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will permit him to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. In the garden of God. The one who is faithful to the end will enjoy the garden of God. And then 2 Corinthians says this in this really strange passage where Paul talks about this this friend I know who went up to heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 4. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God only knows. Was caught up to the third heaven. Right. So this is where we see this idea. To the holy of holies. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise. And he heard things too sacred to be put into words, things that a person is not permitted to speak. So what we see is this picture that develops of like, yeah, yeah, there's like heaven, but then there's like heaven. There's like the spiritual realm, but then there's like the center of everything that is. Isaiah describes it as a throne room, and he enters the throne room of God, and the train of God's robe fills up the entire room. And there's these random creatures that look really creepy and nothing like what you picture in an angel. Um, Like if you have like a precious moment doll in your head, like forget that. They're that a thousand eyes and 18 wings and it's really, really weird. One of my favorite internet rabbit holes, y'all, is uh, angel memes. So you're welcome. You didn't learn anything from me, you got that. Where was I going with that? Oh yeah, so Isaiah, he, he goes in and like, these creatures are flying around this throne room and they are just going, holy, holy, holy. That's, that's all they can do. They're in the presence of God. And it's not like because they're chained up and they're forced, like this is all you'd better say. It's like, I'm in the presence of this being that all that can come out of me is holy, holy, 
holy. And it's just forever and ever and ever. And he said, the sound of the voices of these creatures is like thunder and it shakes the foundations of the earth. If we saw one of these creatures, right, we would be like terrified and we would fall on our faces. And these creatures are responding to God in this way. In the presence of God, in the throne room. Revelation picks up this idea. In Revelation chapter four, we're taken into the throne room of God and we see these creatures, very similar creatures, flying around singing these praises to God, praises to God, praises to God. You get to chapter five and there's this scroll. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Suddenly John looks up and he sees a lamb standing as if it had been slain. It's Jesus. Because this one has conquered through the shedding of his blood, he is worthy to open the scroll. And suddenly, Revelation does this really cool and beautiful thing where Jesus goes and stands in the center of the heavenly places on the throne. And everything that in chapter four that was worshiping God now turns and worships Jesus. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter two when he says that the Lord like condescends himself submits himself to death, even death on a cross. And that in response to that, God takes him and lifts him up into glory and gives him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. In Revelation chapter five, you get this beautiful image of not just all of the souls that are in heaven, but all of creation itself the four corners of the earth are crying out in praise to the lamb who was slain. And I don't think it's because they have to. I don't think it's because they're being coerced to or because it's the right thing to do. I think it's because he is so beautiful and breathtaking and alluring that all they can do is sing. They can't help but sing. And so, sorry, I got ahead of myself there, but heaven's paradise, sorry, heaven or paradise's defining characteristic is the presence of the one who's centered in it. Heaven isn't great because it's heaven. Heaven is great because of the one who is there. It's about presence to God. Uh, proximity to God or to Jesus. It's not about being in the space. It's about being close to the one who reigns in the space. And so what in the world does any of this have to do with here and now? Like, okay, cool. <laughs> but what do we do with that? Well, look at the end of our passage from today, Luke chapter 24. Just looking at the last couple of verses here. So when Jesus had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Okay, so not a trick question. Where is Jesus? He's in my heart. Ah, wrong answer. Okay, 
Sorry, that was harsh. No, he's not in your heart. He's actually in heaven. He has ascended and he is in heaven where we await his return. This is what the Apostles' Creed says. This is what the New Testament says. This is what Revelation says. This is what the church has said for 2,000 some odd years. Until recently, we all of a sudden started inviting Jesus into our heart, which was like this weird interpretation of Revelation that was just wrong. Um, And so, like what dwells in us is Jesus by the presence of his spirit. What happens when we gather is Jesus mysteriously joins us in our gatherings so that we meet him at the table and in our worship. But the, the like embodied resurrected Jesus is not on this earth. The embodied and resurrected Jesus is in heaven, seating, uh, seated at the throne. And so what does this mean for us? That the reality of heaven now is the reality of a crucified Jesus reigning as king over all creation. And that, that kingdom is firmly established in the heavens and is being established here on earth among the people of God. And so when we say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are submitting ourselves to this heavenly reign, to this heavenly king. We are submitting ourselves to the one who conquered violence through pacifism. The one who conquered evil through self-giving love. The one who uh, fights for justice, who looks at the marginalized and lifts them up instead of advancing self and we're asking jesus this heavenly reality this heavenly realm this reign to burst into our earthly world to establish his reign here and now in our disordered mess and so that dying and going to heaven even though it's true right so jesus seems to believe that when he died he was immediately going to be in the presence of god upon his death Lord, I commit my soul to your spirit. Um, Stephen says a very similar thing after Stephen is stoned in Acts. Paul in Philippians says something very similar when he says to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And so yes, absolutely. The, the scriptures seem to suggest that upon dying, our non-material disembodied consciousness, whatever you want to call that, we'll call it a soul for simplicity's sake will be in the presence of God in paradise, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple of God. But this is not the point. Right, this is not the point. It's like visiting Disneyland and saying, like you're in the parking lot and you're looking around the parking lot being like, isn't this awesome? We're at Disneyland, y'all. This is great. Y'all ready to go home now? It's like, wait, you just missed the whole point of Disneyland. You haven't actually really gone to Disneyland. You're like outside the park in the parking lot. And so heaven is not primarily a destination that we get to, but a reality that we live into. And while, yes, it is true that we will somehow consciously experience this, I believe, that what is on offer is that we can consciously experience it right here and right now. And this is what we're saying when we pray, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so when Paul says it like this in Philippians, um, I think there's something important for us to take away, right? If we disregard heaven, we disregard the resurrected reign of Jesus in the cosmos, Um, the place from where we believe he will one day return to establish shalom on earth. 
And this can actually begin to change and malform the way that we see ourselves in the world. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. You've probably heard this verse before, and my goodness. The last five years, this verse... Um, Like it just, it, it ought to have shaped who the people of Jesus were in ways that it just didn't. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our allegiance is not to this country or this state. Our citizenship is in heaven. And, and what Paul's saying here is not, hey, this world doesn't matter because you're gonna go to heaven when you die. No, it's, it's actually the opposite of that. In the face of, right, this is written to a group of Philippians who were in a few short years gonna be persecuted by the state because of their allegiance to Jesus. In the face of that, remember that your citizenship is in heaven. He goes on to say, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our citizenship, our allegiance, our life orientation is to the King Jesus. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to have faith. This is the good news that's on offer. That we can submit ourselves to the King Jesus and his incoming kingdom and it is beautiful, and it is good, and it is delightful. And even when it doesn't make sense, even when it costs us, we know that this is the call. We live under the reign and the rules and the values of one who already reigns in heaven and from where our hope is. So there's a, a pastor, an author, who wrote a book on heaven named David Lawrence. And I, I love the way that he summarizes this because it's so perfect. He says, the main idea is not that we will go to heaven, but that our values and our view of the world need to be shaped by God from heaven. God calls us to live in the culture of a fallen earth without conforming to its norms. Being intent instead on transforming earth by living out the values of heaven. Our call, our mission is to transform the earth by living out the values of heaven. We are the light of the world and that light shines from heaven onto earth through us and so heaven and earth are linked in a present tense relationship. And Christians need to learn to think more about heaven's authority in their lives and about its accessibility at their deaths. This is what it means to believe in the good news, that we have a good and a beautiful and a benevolent king who's gonna bring peace on earth, who's gonna make all things right, who's gonna teach us how to love and forgive and live in gracious and beautiful, loving relationship with one another and with God, and that has already begun here among us. We don't have to wait for it. We don't have to live into the old patterns of the old fallen creation. We have the real opportunity and invitation to live into the new kingdom, the heavenly kingdom, right now. So two things are true, and this will be it. I promise. Last week I summed it up like six times. Okay, this is it. 
One, when we die, we will enter the presence of Jesus. This is good, comforting, and beautiful good news. Right? I think in some of our cynicism, we can like poo-poo this and be like, ah, that's terrible. No, no, that's actually really good and beautiful. Paul longed for it. It was a comfort to Jesus as he finally gave up his, his spirit. Like, this is not a bad thing. We don't have to see this as a bad thing. And as we um, experience the loss of loved ones, we can, like, rest in the reality that though they are not here, their consciousness is in the presence of Jesus, and he has assured us that one day he will resurrect their bodies. And we will one day be welcomed into the presence of the throne room of God where these crazy creatures are like singing these praises and we will join them. And I I think, right, I don't know what that will be like, but I'm pretty confident that we too will be enraptured by the goodness and the beauty of Jesus and we will just join their song. But two, because that's good and that's comforting and that's helpful. But for right now, we can begin to experience glimpses of paradise on earth now. In our gathering, in our communion, in our singing praises to Jesus, the church has always insisted that we are mimicking what happens in heaven and bringing heaven on earth here and now in our worship. But we're also tasked with living into ways that bring heaven to earth for our neighbors for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We seek justice and we live into grace and we forgive. We do good and we meet people's needs. So as a church, we've always sought to find ways to like do this meaningfully. Um, so we have a special guest here with us this morning to talk a little bit about this. I'm almost done talking. She can talk a little bit for us. Um, I wanna invite Morgan Bass up. Morgan is the friendship program manager for Houston Welcomes Refugees. Houston Welcomes Refugees is an organization that we worked with a while back. It's been years, and we're excited to renew our partnership with them. So y'all give Morgan a hand. Morgan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So um, tell us a little bit about Houston Welcomes Refugees. Why do y'all exist? What's your mission? Yes, thanks. So my name is Morgan Bass. As you said, my role is the friendship program manager at Houston Welcomes Refugees. I know that sounds like a fake job description, but it's a real thing. It'll make sense in a second. But they're going to put a slide up here that shows our mission for Houston Welcomes Refugees. And our mission is to ease the resettlement process for refugees coming to Houston by mobilizing invested, caring volunteers, fostering hope amidst crisis. So we were founded in 2016. We're a 501c3 nonprofit profit organization. And what we saw was that there's this gap of people in the church that have a desire to love their neighbor and to serve the marginalized in our community. And then Houston is also a top resettlement city across the United States for refugees. So especially in this area, you guys are like 10 to 15 minutes away from most of the refugee community living in Houston. And so they really are our neighbors. And so we wanted to bridge the gap of people that are amazing, caring volunteers that have the hope of Jesus and the refugee community in Houston. Nice. So, um, yeah, how do you actually do this? What do you, what do you do with the refugees in Houston? How do you help them out? 
Great question. So we have a partnership with two of the five resettlement agencies in Houston. We have a partnership with YMCA International and Interfaith Ministries of Houston. And so through those partnerships, we receive information from them about the refugee families arriving to Houston. And we serve those refugees through three programs. So the first one doesn't have a graphic up here, but the first one is community education. So it's me standing here before you giving a little tidbit about HWR, but we have formal orientations that's required for anyone to volunteer with us. We do those all across the city, primarily in churches, but other organizations can invite us in as well. And we give people just general education about the refugee crisis, how you can get involved, and just really educating the community. And then the second program is our Starting Essentials program, which we have some graphics for that. So we have a warehouse in the Heights that full of what we call welcome kits. And so welcome kits are essentially plastic totes filled with starting essentials goods for families that arrive here. So when we know that a family is coming, we will get all the welcome kits that are needed for an apartment. So we have kitchen kits, bathroom kits, bedding kits, personal care kits, cleaning kits, and those are put together by people in the community. So churches can put together welcome kits. You could go onto our Amazon wish list fill up your cart, you could go to Target. It really doesn't matter. And you can drop it off at our warehouse. And we use those to give to a refugee family when they arrive so that when they come to their home, when they first arrive in Houston, it's already done for them. They don't have to spend their own money to buy those starting goods. And we also have move-in teams that is a part of the Starting Essentials program where during the lunch hour, a team of people can go to the family's apartment and set up the welcome kits in their home. And then we also provide a hot meal for them and then we provide two weeks worth of groceries so that when a family arrives, it's not just this empty, barren apartment, but it's fully set up and it's a peaceful place for them to come to because they've been through a really long journey to get to that point. And so that is our starting essentials program, which is really amazing and obviously integral to an integral way to serve refugees. And then the last program, which is a program I oversee, which will tell you that I'm not making up my role, is called the Friendship Program. And so that is the core of why HWR was started. So if you could imagine being in a new place, and maybe you have experienced that, but also thinking of a refugee's journey of experiencing really intense trauma and persecution to be even classified as a refugee, and then going through a journey to get here. Some people, they may have left their country you know, a few months ago, depending on where they come from. Or there's some people that arrived to Houston that have been in refugee camps for 18 years and they're arriving to Houston. So there's a lot of different um, areas on the spectrum of what someone's journey looks like. And so if you could imagine being in that position and potentially not knowing anyone here in Houston, we mobilize teams of usually four to six people per family to be on what we call a welcome team. And they offer friendship to that family for the first six months that they're here. So if we get enough advance notice from the resettlement agencies, you can be there at the apartment, I mean, not, not at the apartment, the airport, holding up a sign that says, welcome to Houston. I did it just a few weeks ago and it was really fun. And then you're just walking alongside them in friendship for six months. You're not required to get them anything. You're not required to take the position of a caseworker that, that, you know, that handles the government funding. You're just there to be a friend. And I volunteered with HWR since 2019. I've been working there for a little over 10 months. So I've been on several welcome teams. It's life-changing just to be a friend and to be someone that's a Houstonian that knows you know, how to get around and how to 
get acclimated to living here. And so beautiful friendships can be formed through welcome teams. And that is our top need right now as an organization as well. I know that was a long answer. No, that was great. That was perfect. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the, the families that are around us? Where are they from? What are some of their stories? Yes. So most of our families that we have served in the recent year are Afghan families, particularly because of the Afghan crisis and the fall of Kabul in 2021. But we have a huge Congolese population, a large Syrian population as well. We've started to see more um, individuals coming from South America, but typically the highest population is Afghan, Congolese, and Syrian. So... um I want to get started what's first what's step one step one is attending an orientation so if you go online or there's actually a qr code right here i'll get out of the way but there's a qr code and so you can rsvp to an orientation we have them throughout the month every month there's some that are online and there's some that are in person so whatever works best for you it's an hour long and you're just getting information about the refugee crisis like i said in ways that you can get involved but our biggest need are welcome teams i cannot emphasize that enough i'm not just saying that because i oversee all of the welcome teams but it is kind of a intimidating thing to say hey will you engage in this cross-cultural friendship for six months and there's a high chance you don't speak the same language that obviously feels like a big ask and that can be very intimidating but please use me as a personal testimony that I did it even before I got paid to do it and it's so rewarding and so life-giving and truly life-changing and so I would encourage you to pray about what it would look like for maybe you and your family you and people within this church community joining a team together Um, and I promise you won't regret it so can you tell us a little bit more about like what's the time commitment for that what is weekend or month in month out look like to be on that team? Yes, so it's a six-month commitment, but since you're on a team, more realistically, you're probably visiting the family like once every other week because you're offsetting it with people that are on your team as well. When they first arrive, they're probably going to have more needs and more free time. So when they first arrive, they're not going to have a car. They're probably not going to be going many places except when their caseworker comes to visit them. So that's when you can go over and spend a lot of time with them, with your team. But as they get jobs and their kids get enrolled in school, they're going to have less time, just like for all of you that have other commitments in your life. You have less time to just hang out at home, right? So then over time, that commitment or the time that you spend there will naturally decrease. But the goal is that you're building genuine friendship with these families so that when the six months is over, you're not like have a nice life, you're still friends with them and they're actually true people that are in your life. And so it kind of is more on the front end, but you can offset that with people on your team. And then it decreases naturally at the end of the six months because they will start to become more busy with their own lives. Cool. Thank you so much, Morgan. Yeah, no problem. If you have any questions, please let me know. So we've put the link um, to the QR code on the Today page, so if you didn't get a chance to snap a picture of that, it'll be on the Today page. We'll put it on our social media stuff as well. Right, we talk all the time about finding ways and opportunities to be involved in good and beautiful acts of justice, acts of good, acts of love in our world, and I feel like this one is probably near the top of the list of opportunities that we have in front of us. Um, There are lots of good things that we can be about, right? Um, So the question is, Jesus, what do you want me to step into? 
what opportunities do I have right in front of me? What availability do I have? And how can I be a part of it? So thank you, Morgan, for sharing that with us. I want to encourage you all, if you have questions, reach out to her. You can ask me. We can connect you with the right people. There's a couple different opportunities here. One is, like, easily we can provide some stuff that's needed. But then I really love the idea of us living into this idea that we really want to see redemption and connection happen among us and in our city. And this feels like an easy way to do that. Um, Maybe not easy, but simple way to do that. So um, thank you for your time this morning. Let's pray together as we continue our worship. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.